tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hello, my name is Rafaela and I'm the science communications intern at Yakult. Today I'm joined by Professor Colin Hill, who is a professor of microbial food safety in the School of Microbiology at University College Cork in Ireland. He is on the board of ISAP and also a founding principal investigator at the APC Microbiome Ireland, a multidisciplinary research centre that focuses on the role of the gut microbiota in health and disease. And so in this episode with Professor Hill, we will be discussing probiotics and fermented foods and their impact on the gut microbiota and health. Hello, Professor Colin Hill. Thank you so much for joining us today in this podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about probiotics and fermented foods. And so to begin, could you perhaps share with us what they are and how they differ? Yes, thank you first for inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm delighted to do it. You've asked about probiotics and fermented foods. Well, they've both been defined recently by ISAP, and I'm on the board of ISAP, so I should stick to those definitions. Uh, probiotics are live microorganisms that, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit on the host. So these are very specific microbes that are normally have been isolated. They've been grown up, usually, of course, in factories and, and they've been packaged. And they're very defined, very highly characterized uh, microbes, usually bacteria, but they can be yeast as well. And then they're added to a food or they are packaged as a supplement. And it is an absolute requirement that if something is to be called a probiotic, it has to confer a health benefit on the consumer. So that's probiotics. Fermented foods, on the other hand, are foods that are made through desired microbial growth and enzymatic conversions of food components. So you take a raw material like milk and you transform it into cheese or yogurt, or you take meat and transform that into fermented meats. Uh, this is done, of course, by the action of live, safe bacteria, but very often these bacteria are not characterized to the same degree. And the big distinction is they do not have to demonstrate a health benefit. Now, obviously, they may well have a health benefit and the consumption of the fermented food may confer a health benefit, but it's not part of the definition. So a cheese is a food made from milk by the action of bacteria, but it does not have to have a proven health benefit, whereas probiotics are very highly characterized strains which have demonstrated a health benefit. So am I right in saying that fermented foods are not necessarily considered probiotic? Yes, absolutely. I mean, fermented foods don't fit the definition of probiotics, as I said, because they they don't necessarily confer a health benefit. They can, of course, though, contain probiotics. So, for example, you could add probiotics to a yogurt and sell that food as a probiotic food. But it's usually not the case. I mean, the vast majority of fermented foods do not have probiotics added to them. And because they don't have a proven health benefit and they're not characterized, they're not probiotic themselves in nature. And what is the evidence to suggest that probiotics have a beneficial effect on our gut microbiota? Yeah, for me, this is a common almost misconception. Um, The site of probiotics, of action of probiotics is the gut. And of course, the gut is where the microbiota, the gut microbiota is also located. And because the 
probiotics are microbes and the gut microbiota are microbes, people kind of conflate the two and assume that probiotics must therefore act through the microbiota. But in fact, this is not the case. There is no requirement for probiotics to have any impact on the microbiota in order to influence health. There may be some probiotics that act through the microbiota, but I'm, I'm really not aware of any convincing evidence of that. The site of action of most probiotics after you consume them is likely to be the small intestine, just beyond the stomach, where the immune system and the nervous system is located, rather than the colon, which is where the vast majority of the microbiota is located. And we also have a, a bit of a problem in that, even though we've been working on the microbiota now as a scientific community for 20, 25 years, we still don't really know what a healthy microbiota looks like. And so it'd be very hard to say that even if probiotics did have an impact, that that was a beneficial impact. I mean, the probiotics have to benefit the host, not the microbiota. I think that's an important distinction to make. Okay, so now that you have reiterated that probiotics must have a benefit to the host, could you perhaps share then what is their impact on our health? Well, probiotics can have many effects on health. They, as I said, they, they generally act, I think, through the small intestine. They can work directly on the gut nervous system and impact the brain. They can work on the host immune system. They could work on dietary components. They could break down dietary components. Or they could even directly inhibit pathogens, bacteria or viruses that might be causing infections or capable of causing infections. Now, it's important to point out again that none of these actions actually require a role for the microbiota, but they all engage directly. The probiotic is engaging either directly with the host or with harmful microbes like um, pathogens or viruses. And so where is the strongest evidence for probiotics? Well, the best evidence is that which is gathered in properly conducted, randomly controlled clinical trials, usually referred to as RCTs, or by really well-conducted food trials. Or sometimes the results of lots of individual trials can be gathered together and studied as a kind of a meta-analysis or a systematic review. This is the highest level of evidence that anything, that any medicine or food or nutrient has a health benefit. And there has been evidence gathered for probiotics of that level of RCTs and meta-analyses and systematic reviews for certain immune disorders, for example, like IBS or allergy uh, or disease like that. There's been a lot of evidence gathered for the um, ability of probiotics to reduce the impact or duration of an infectious event, or, as I said, in affecting the gut-brain axis in, in the context of relief of anxiety or even stress reduction. So there's a lot of really good evidence out there. Previously, you touched on how probiotics might work in the small intestine. And so could you perhaps go into a bit more detail on how probiotics actually work and their potential mechanisms of action? That's a great question. And that's really the, the holy grail for most probiotic scientists. And they're attempting to answer that in, in laboratories all over the world. How do probiotics elicit their beneficial effect? And there are rare instances, and I'll give you an example of one in a moment, where it's a very specific mechanism. The probiotic does a thing which benefits the host. But mostly, I think it's going to be very, very complex. I mean, a microbe might seem like a very simple thing, but of course, it is, contains many thousands of individual molecules and surface structures, and there are hundreds of receptors on the host 
epithelial cell surface and the immune system and the nervous system. So it's likely to be a very complex interaction between the bacteria and the host. There are some simple examples, for example, um, lactose intolerance. Some people, many people, in fact, uh, worldwide are intolerant to lactose as they get older. Um, it's a natural evolutionary thing. As you stop breastfeeding, you should become intolerant to lactose. And there are some probiotics and some yogurt cultures, for example, which contain a high amount of the enzyme lactase. And so if you consume yogurt, which contains both lactose and lactase, you can do that without exhibiting symptoms of being lactose intolerant. So there we know a single enzyme is responsible for the beneficial effect. But that's rare. And I think in most cases, we, we will find out that it's a multiplicity of factors that end up eliciting these beneficial health effects. Some people are actually quite sceptical of the evidence behind probiotics. Why do you think that is? I think that whenever science and commerce come into contact, there can be a lot of friction. Um, there have certainly been a lot of claims made by companies that do not withstand scientific scrutiny. So a company obviously in marketing will, will maybe make claims that maybe go a bit beyond the scientific evidence to support those claims. And it only takes a few examples of that and the kind of exposure of that to bring skepticism around the whole field. So I think there is a, a very, and as a scientist, of course, we should always be very skeptical and we should always have a healthy skepticism of what we're proposing. I mean, the way science is meant to work is you, you try to prove something is not true, not try and prove something is true. So we should be trying to prove that they, you know, probiotics do not give a health benefit and be unable to prove that and then conclude that they do give a health benefit. But I think we're right to be skeptical, but I don't think the marketing around probiotics has really helped the field to convince the consumer to the same degree as, say, the pharmaceutical industry has managed to do with pharmaceuticals. Okay, so now if we move away from probiotics and move on to fermented foods, this is an area with a lot less evidence compared to probiotics so far. But is there any evidence to suggest that they might have a positive impact on the gut microbiota? Yeah, once again, I, I don't know if we have to really prove that fermented foods have an impact on the gut microbiota in order to believe that the consumption of fermented foods is a good thing or that it elicits a health benefit. I've absolutely no doubt that most fermented foods, at least those that don't involve alcohol, uh, are nutritionally beneficial and probably benefit just in a pure nutritional standpoint. But I also believe there could well be a benefit in consuming large numbers of safe bacteria on a regular basis. Our gut has evolved. I mean, we didn't um, evolve as humans in a world which is so sterile and hygienic as it is now. And of course, that's a good thing because it prevents a lot of infectious disease. But it probably means as well that we don't get exposed to the same number of bacteria as our immune systems and nervous systems would have evolved to expect. So I think there's a good case to be made that consuming fermented foods, getting lots of live microbes into the upper part of the GI tract where we don't have a lot of existing live microbes could well have a very beneficial effect. So I think there's no doubt that fermented foods impact the microbiota in the upper reaches of the gut because they're probably the most dominant bacteria there, but much less evidence that they affect the microbiota in the colon, which is the microbiota that most people study. Where do you think the field of research for probiotics and fermented foods is going to go in the future? 
Yeah, we touched on this earlier. It's obviously mechanisms. If we could yeah. really understand, you know, which microbial molecules are interacting with which host receptors to elicit health benefits, we could do so much more. We could pick the best strains for every condition. We could improve strains by getting to produce more of those molecules. We could much more define dosing regimes, how often, how much do you need to consume to have the health benefit? And of course, if we'd mechanisms, it'd be much easier to convince clinicians, nutritionists, dietitians of the value of live microbes. And so we really need mechanisms if we're going to, you know, if we're going to be a science, then the science always has to be chasing mechanisms. But also, I think if we're going to convince the sceptical public that we talked about, we need mechanisms. Considering that in the UK, we cannot use the term probiotic. How do you choose an appropriate probiotic in fermented foods? And how would you look for these in a supermarket? Yeah, I like kind of the, the two extremes almost. I love the, the kind of locally produced um, fermented foods you might find in your a market center or, or somewhere where, you know, local people are producing fermented foods that may be using organic ingredients and, and raw milk and things like that. They're usually a bit more experimental. And I think these are wonderful. I love the, the taste and texture and I love sampling those. And obviously you're supporting small food manufacturers and that's always a good thing. But on the other extreme, I trust the big global manufacturers because they have reputations. They, they would not make claims if they felt they couldn't stand over them. It's the kind of ones in between, the ones that are you know trying to produce um, food in bulk, but don't have a reputation that they're, they're really worried about or don't have a scientific division, don't really engage in research. They'd be the ones I'd be a bit more skeptical of. And so if I was to choose a probiotic, um, I would generally, of course, or if I was if I had an underlying condition or if I was traveling to a country with poor hygiene, for example, on holidays or as going to a conference or something, I would look for the probiotics that have the best evidence to support that particular application. And OK, it's difficult for a, maybe a non-scientific consumer to do that. But I think you, you need to put in the effort, particularly if you have an underlying condition. You know, you wouldn't you, you accept that if you take a medicine or a drug to treat a condition that a lot of research and thought has gone into which drug you're taking. And I think you should do, make the same level of effort with probiotics. So then do you regularly consume probiotics and fermented foods? Yes, I consume an awful lot of fermented foods. My wife is a microbiologist as well, and she makes both kombucha and kefir at home. Really fabulous. I mean, I, I love them. They're, they're absolutely um, really tasty, but it, I always I feel like they're doing me a lot of benefit. And I eat a lot of cheese, yogurt, fermented meats. I don't actually consume probiotics on a daily basis, but I'm, I'm lucky I don't have an underlying condition for which um, probiotics have shown, been shown to have a benefit. If, if I had, I would certainly take them. Um, so I think I get my daily fix of bacteria through fermented foods rather than probiotics at the moment, but that would change if my life circumstances change. Well, Professor Colin Hill, it was great having you on the podcast today. And thank you so much for giving us the latest insights into probiotics and fermented foods. You're very welcome. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP.